Well, good morning, Village Church. It is an absolute joy to be together with God's people and worshiping. Uh, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. We are in the book of Mark. If you'd open up your Bibles to the book of Mark, and we're going to be in chapter, my brain forgot, chapter 14, verse 32. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And uh, we have walked away for the fall from our series in the book of Exodus. And we are going to be studying the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to put up the fruit of the Spirit for you on the screen so you can see it. The fruit of the Spirit come from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And here are the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit are inward realities that God, the Spirit of God, wants to develop in every single one of us. Now, the first um, sermon on this series was two weeks ago, and I want to review one part of this with you, which is why we're doing this series on the fruit of the Spirit. And here's the first why. Because everything around us is so broken. Now, now that I got you in the room, I'm told one of the things that I say to people all the time is I say, amen, and I want you to say amen back. I, I love the opportunity to have some kind of interaction right here, okay? This world is so broken. Amen? Amen. Amen. And we are walking into one of the most controversial, challenging, divisive seasons our nation and many of us in this room have ever experienced. Um, Our bodies, our souls, our relationships in this world need desperately what the Spirit is doing in us and what he wants to do through us. There has never been a time for the church to shine brighter than now. And it is going to require a different level of fortitude and self-control and inner transformation than probably we've had to have to date as the church. And one of my prayers is that the Village Church would be genuinely a bright light that embodies the fruit of the Spirit as a community in a way that just befuddles the world where they look at this and they say there's something fundamentally different about these people at the Village Church of Bartlett, and they are drawn to Jesus. Here's the second um, uh, why for why we're doing this. Um, We are entering into one of the most unprecedented uh, relational and mental health crises we have seen yet. Uh, All the numbers are out, whether it's anxiety, depression, marital conflict, you name it, use of uh, prescription medications, uh, abuse of that, or um, alcohol or drugs. Everything is off the charts right now. People are panicking, and we don't know emotionally how to actually deal with these things. And we especially don't know what it means to bring so much of the drama and trauma that we feel inside back before God and ask him, Lord, help me, transform me. My coping mechanisms are broken. I need something deeper than the behavior modification and the substance abuse, which is all I've ever known in my life. And so we want to do with you in the church is to say that we know that this is real in the church. We know that these are very real experiences. Many of you in this room have, and it is a secret that nobody but you or the Lord or maybe a family member or two know about it. And we just want to come before you, and we want to go before the Lord with you and say, God, would you do something deeper inside of me than what I am used to doing in the past? Um, I've tried transforming my heart, and I have failed miserably every single time. So today, we are talking about the fruit of the spirit of joy. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you met Jesus for the very first time, I want you to imagine you didn't know him. 
Uh, maybe you heard the name aroundabouts, and you go to a party, and you see Jesus for the first time, what would be one word that you would use to describe Jesus? You spend an entire evening with him, you're around him, you're watching him, you don't really totally know the man's heart yet, but you're just kind of watching his behavior. Well, let me, let me tell you a word after um, reading some scripture that I think might be the word that most people take away from watching Jesus. I actually think if Jesus were at a party, most people would walk away and say, that's a happy guy. Let me, let me actually show you this, right? Uh, the book of Matthew chapter 11 uh, says this, the son of man, uh, that's Jesus by the way, he came eating and drinking. Anybody like to eat and drink? It's fun, right? Good. Um, Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. He came eating and drinking. And they say, this is not what people say about Jesus. They're watching him. And they say this, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Now, by the way, was Jesus ever gluttonous? The answer is no. Was Jesus ever drunk? The answer is no, because that is sin. They look at him and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So the people who actually don't know him, they just step back and they observe him. And here's their observation. Jesus is always at a party and he's the friend of all of these people. Uh, look at this conversely. The people actually want to be friends with Jesus. There's actually something really compelling about the person of Jesus. If you don't know theologically a single thing about him, if you're not a religious leader with a bone to pick with his teaching and you just observe the man, there is actually something interesting and different about this guy. Now here's a question I can already hear you thinking it. Was Jesus always happy? What's the answer? No, please say no, because if that is the answer to, (laughs) we have way bigger issues right here. Uh, When Jesus's friend died, he felt sorrow and he what? He wept. When Jesus rebuked hypocrites, he felt anger. When Jesus threw tables, he felt disgust. When Jesus was beat to a pulp, he felt pain. When Jesus saw the least and the hurting, he felt compassion. Now let's just take a moment to define our terms. If you take notes, you can write this down. Let's define the word happiness together. Happiness is simply this. It is a positive chemical response to my circumstances. Anybody like to be happy? We all like to be happy. And in normal circumstances, when there wasn't something unusual intruding upon Jesus' life, it seems that somehow there was something that people observed in this man, that happiness was actually a very regular part of his life. Uh, This was a part of what made Jesus so compelling to people who did not even know him. But I want you to imagine happiness, it's like the waves on the top of the ocean, Uh, It's always responding to whatever the environment is, whatever the wind is, whatever the circumstances are. It's always responding. Uh, And and, and it's always like looking to something else to define whether or not it exists or not. And so happiness is completely contingent. And here's what the believer wants. I want more than happiness. Now, there is something about being in Christ that there is probably a level of happiness that should be our default that is not in most people. When you know the Savior of the world and your sins are forgiven and you have hope and you have redemption and you have the Spirit of God, I would hope that there would be some kind of default happiness. But that's not always the case. But, but let's define joy. Joy is something very different. At its core, joy is contentment of the soul. If happiness is like the waves on the top of the ocean that are always changing and responding to the environment and the atmosphere, 
Joy is like the deep down parts of the ocean that are always stable. They're stable in temperature. They're stable in current. They're just stable. It's solid. It's grounded. And whatever's happening up at the top, it can't shake what is happening down at the very bottom. And so if joy in normal circumstances, when life is easy, if joy in normal circumstances manifests most often as happiness, joy in hurricanes and crushing experiences manifest as contentment. And so when we talk about the fight for joy, we're not talking about the fight to be happy all the time. That's not human. That's not realistic. That's actually a ridiculous standard that nobody could achieve. What we're actually talking about is going beneath the surface of the ocean and going down to the very core parts of who we are and fighting for something that is deep, deep, deep down inside of us. And what we have found for many of us is that we have tried to create a joyful core inside of ourselves and we have failed miserably because the moment the world gets difficult, contentment is not our default, right? You know you're achieving some level of joy when the world around you is chaos and insanity and there's something about the inner core of your person that is remarkably stable. So when the core of someone is content, you can navigate most of what this world could throw at you. Uh, But the opposite of content is discontent. And when the core of you is discontent, here are just a few symptoms that something is wrong. You are perpetually dissatisfied, regularly critical, and just generally negative. Like when you see those attributes come out of you, those are symptoms that the core is broken. And so what you need, if those are regular attributes that come out of you, especially in suffering, pain, discomfort, we need to go back to the Lord and just say, this world is getting crazier and I need you God, to do something deeper inside of me. I'm, not, I'm no longer just asking that you make my life easier. I'm asking that you actually transform me and my inner person and give me the spirit of stable contentment no matter what you bring to my life. And that is something, Village Church, that requires the power of the Holy Spirit. So open up your Bibles, Mark 14, 32. It's far too easy to discuss joy when life is easy. What I want to do is show you what joy looks like in the middle of a relational, physical, psychological, and emotional hurricane. Jesus is about to be arrested in order to be unjustly crucified. Uh, He's taken his disciples, most specifically Peter, James, and John, the core of the three. He's taken them to a garden, and they are coming together to pray Um, Jesus is anxious, and what you're about to witness is that Jesus, I want you to hear me, he's not okay on every single front. He is not okay emotionally, relationally, psychologically. Like, things are breaking. And from the outside, if you're watching the physical part of the man, he is struggling, and he's about to break. This is going to be a pretty severe moment that you get to watch, and God has been so gracious to give us this text to show us the humanity of Jesus. We understand his divinity, and now you get to stare his humanity right in the face. Uh, Verse 32, Mark 14, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he, Jesus, said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, 
my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. So what do, what do normal humans do when their soul is troubled and distressed to the point of feeling like they're going to die? Let me give you a couple simple responses. We cry, we weep, we wail, we heave, we pray these guttural out loud prayers to God. They're not just like trite pre-written prayers. These are things from the very gut and the soul of a person who cries out and pleads with God. We fall to our knees. Here's what happens in verse 35. Going a little further, he, Jesus, he fell on the ground. Are you starting to get an idea now of physiologically what's happening inside of him? We also learn from other texts that he is filled with so much stress and anxiety that he's having a very rare um, physiological response of actually sweating blood. I mean, this is, this is getting to be very intense here. Goes a little further. He says he fell to the ground. He prayed. He prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. So something I just want to share with you personally, I find so endearing about Jesus is he did not hide. It seems one ounce of his very raw emotion from his disciples. I mean, they can hear him. They can see him. And I'm guessing that his friends have never seen Jesus like this. Their leader has always been strong in control, focused, prayerful, calm, could stop the seas from storming, bring peace wherever he went, heal people. This is probably a side of Jesus that they have never seen. I had uh, an experience um, last year, and I found myself unexpectedly wailing and heaving in tears in the presence of two people I had just met. I'd never cried like that in my entire life. And you know what words came out of my mouth next? I'm so sorry. I apologize. I'm sorry you had to see me like this. Which is, which is honestly just another level of brokenness inside of me. Like Watch Jesus pour out the full weight of his emotions unashamedly And he brings these three men with him, knowing where his emotions are going to take him. And he lets them have a front row seat in his most vulnerable, raw, emotional state. There is something so compelling and endearing about a, a leader who can allow you to see this part of their life. You can see why they just loved him so much. So Jesus has a decision to make. Will I accept or will I resent the will of my father? Will I accept or will I resent the will of my father? Uh, Go back 700 years. Uh, Jesus is very familiar with the book of Isaiah. And here's what Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 says. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Ironically, Gethsemane is an oil press where... um, Olives are crushed and the oil is released from them. And so it's very fitting that he finds himself in Gethsemane. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the father, has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. 
Verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Verse 12 says, he poured out his soul to death. So Jesus has to make a decision in anguish. He has to make a decision when his body is revolting against him. He has to make a decision in the face of anxiety. He has to make a decision in the face of a whole bunch of things that are going on. Will I accept or will I resent the will of my father? And then in verse 36, it tells us what the core of Jesus is made of. And he said, Abba, which is Aramaic for daddy. It's a super meaningful intimate prayer, you're getting just one of the most beautiful insights into Jesus' heart. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Have you been there to a degree? I'm not saying you have to be like Jesus' level of severity, but have you ever been in the place where emotionally, psychologically, relationally, spiritually, you are going before the Lord and saying, I know you can take this from me. I know you have the ability. I know you can make my life easier right now. And Jesus, I think, is empowering the people of God in this moment to bring every pain and heartache, every piece of discontent, everything that has happened to you before your heavenly Father who loves you and cares for you. Like what freedom is he giving you to come before the Lord with the weight of all of your emotions and all of your distress? But it's what he says next, the Village Church, we need to get this prayer into our repertoire. Every single time you find yourself in pain, heartache, frustration, loss, you name it, may, be, may these be the words that come out of our, our mouth, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so Jesus is acknowledging all of the pain, all of the heartache, all of the frustration, all of this is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet his heart, I mean, you hear me, chooses contentment and not resentment. And this is the decision that I feel like we face on a daily basis sometime. For some of us, it's every single hour with specific joy robbers in our life. And we have to go before the Lord and say, I want you to take this. I need you to take this. But this is the prayer that transforms the heart from one of resentment to contentment, from one of misery to actually beginning to build a core of joy inside of a person. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. You're my Abba. You are my dad. You are good. You love me. Everything is intentional. You have all power in the world. Not my will, but yours. If you can, I know you can. Please take this from me. But I bend the knee and I choose contentment no matter what you allow, ordain, or permit. The Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ, resides in you if you have trusted in Jesus and the Holy Spirit loves this prayer. Sometimes I pray this, and I don't want to say whatever you will, not my will, but yours be done. But I think the Holy Spirit honors every time we pray this prayer, and I think he begins to form more and more contentment in the inner parts of our soul, particularly when life is hard. If you can win the battle of joy in the most challenging seasons of your life, it will transform how you interact and interface. And then when people watch somebody go through terrible frustration and pain and heartache, the person who endures this with joy is so fundamentally different and exponentially more compelling. I want to share with you two so what's. 
Number one is identify Joy Roberts. I think it is so important for you to know with certainty and clarity what are the human experiences that are most threatening to the inner core parts of ourselves, to our joy, to this contentment of the soul. And there are five of them. And I think you will personally understand many of these. My, my hunch is that if, if you've made it past 25 years old or 30 years old, you'll probably hit three of these. As you get older in your 50s and 60s, all of these just become a part of life. So we need, we need to fight for these. Here's number one, chronic physical pain. In the face of chronic physical pain, we beg God, please take this away from me. But not my will, but yours. Jesus was enduring for these last final days a level of soul pain, heart pain, body pain uh, that was the summation of the full wrath of God poured out on, the, on him of the sins of the world. Nobody understands physical pain, especially ongoing chronic physical pain like Jesus does. Number two, ongoing anxiety. I've never met anybody who chooses anxiety. Sometimes anxiety is a physiological response to things that are just not right or okay. Sometimes anxiety is something we fed for a very long time. I'm not here to diagnose your anxiety, but what I am here to say is Jesus gets anxiety. And in the middle of crippling, ongoing anxiety, you go before the Lord and you beg him, take this away from me. But this is the prayer of contentment. I'll do whatever I can I'm going to trust you to do what you can, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. There are some people who do everything right. They do everything right. They fight for their mind. They fight for their heart. Uh, They've gone the medication route, and they can't yet figure out how to overcome this. And we come before the Lord, and we say, I don't know why you're allowing this. I don't know why you're permitting this to happen. I know you have all the power in the world. Please take this away from me. Not my will, but yours. Relational chaos. We are fundamentally relational beings. And when our core relationships are broken or they are a mess, it sends us in a downward spiral. It could be your spouse, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your best friends. When one of your core relationships is broken, we need to understand that th- th- these are, this is a catalyst that threatens our joy. You need to recognize that. When you watch one of your core relationships in jeopardy, you can go before the Lord and you beg and you say, God, you can fix anything. You can make anything right. You can do everything perfectly and the relationship still may fail. You can't control other people. Anyone figure that one out yet? But Lord, not my will, but yours. Significant disappointment. Jesus' friends, significantly disappointing. He's been betrayed. He's been let down by his religious leaders. He's been let down by the government. He's been let down by his friends. He's been betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas, who he gave access of his entire life to, particularly his money. You have to understand that when there is a significant disappointment in your life, your joy is being threatened. And this is the moment where you go before the Lord and say, fix this. I know you can, but if you don't, Not my will, but yours be done. Core losses, number five. This would be the death of someone you love. It could be the death of a lifelong dream and ambition that you have built. Core losses can be all different things. There are things that our hearts have poured themselves into and invested time, energy, and 
and money and power into. And, and when these things are ripped from us, it can send us in a spiral. And how many of us, when we've lost somebody or something that we've loved, have begged God, please, why? Give it back. Give them back. And, and at the end, you were forced on your knees, sometimes in wailing and weeping to say, not my will, but yours be done. This prayer is the most powerful prayer you can put in your arsenal. Because I'm telling you, every one of these joy robbers will come after you time and time and time again. Village Church, I don't know what the next couple months holds, but I know that we are entering into a season where there are going to be a lot of disappointments. Many of you have already and are about to experience relational breaks on something as trivial as politics. Relationships will be over. Family relationships will be over because of a political view. We're talking about disappointments. We're talking about core loss. Entire industries have been deleted from our economy. We don't know what the future holds. Like there's a lot of pain and disappointment in this upcoming season. And I'm telling you, Village Church, we want to live with integrity. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But we got to get to a point where we go before God and say, listen, I'm not, I am not content in the inner parts of my soul, but God, I'm going to pray this prayer every single time I experience one of these five joy robbers. And I'm going to go before you and I'm going to say, take this from me. I know you can, you have all power, but not my will, but yours be done. The only other option, by the way, is to grow in resentment. All right. Number two, let's get a little more optimistic. Sound good? <laughs> Embrace joy builders. You can build the muscle of contentment in the inner part of your soul. Four things you would be foolish as a follower of Christ to neglect any of these. Ready? Here's number one. Obey God's word. It is the most foolish thing on the planet to disobey God's word, to know what God's word says, and then to go do the opposite. Has it ever gone well for any of you who placed your faith in Jesus Christ? It doesn't. In fact, your soul is designed to follow God's word. And when we go against God's word, our soul is designed to crumble slowly. It might feel good for a moment on the physical side, but our soul cannot endure the weight of prolonged disobedience. We just can't do it. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. He says, if you keep my commandments, which by the way, they're all for your life and freedom. They're never to enslave you. You will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, all these commandments, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Even as I say this, for three quarters of you in the room, there is one act of repeated willful disobedience that the Spirit has just brought up into your mind. Will you repent? Number two, watch for God at work. Can we just agree on this? Is God always up to something? Even at its darkest, village church, I'll say, is God always up to something? I don't care where you're at. Say, amen. Is God always up to something? Amen. You're in your worst, darkest moment. Is God bored and distant? No. Is God always up to something when you're in the most heated argument with that person and it is the most emotional and angering it has ever been? Is God up to something in that moment? The answer is yes. You turn on the news and it's insanity. Is God up to something? The answer is always yes. Acts 13, 49. 
It says this, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. By the way, globally, the word of God and the gospel is spreading and people are coming to faith around the world. And the disciples, as they watch this, they're watching their friends pursue Jesus for the first time and trust him. And here's what it says. The disciples are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Our soul needs to be reminded that God is always up to something. This is like medicine for our soul. And so here's what we do. We watch. We open our eyes and we look. God, what are you doing? What are you doing in this crazy I can't really see what you're up to on the news. I can't see what you're up to there. But I guarantee you, if you open your eyes wide enough, God is going to show you stuff he is up to. Go before the Lord and say, God, show me something today. Show me something today that shows something you are doing. I want to give you credit and glory. My soul needs to see you do something in someone's life. Number three, choose contentment in trials. Choose it. 2 Corinthians 7.4, Paul, who is afflicted and tormented, he says this, in all our affliction, I mean, that's beatings, that's shipwrecks, that's slander, it's people trying to kill him. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. What? Paul got to the point where he learned this prayer. I would like all of this to stop, but not my will, but yours. Finally, number four, enjoy God's presence. Uh, David writes in Psalm 16, and I'll be honest, I most often use this passage at funerals because I think it applies wonderfully um, to the believer's experience with the Lord after death. Uh, But I want you to remember this, that David wrote this about his life now with the Lord. He writes this in Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me, Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart, it's glad. And my whole being, I want you to hear this inner core language, my whole being rejoices. Verse 11, he says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore the art of having time daily with god david prioritized long segments of his life and day just to enjoy the presence of god to pray to study his word and to sing. And David has understood that the discipline of spending time with God produced so much joy of being in his presence. Uh, Village Church, there are so many joy robbers, but there are joy builders. And I want to just challenge you, obey God's word. Open your eyes, see what he's doing. When life is hard, you choose contentment and we kill resentment. And we spend time daily enjoying the presence of God as we pray and study his word and worship him. I'm telling you, these things build the core of a person. And never, never has there been more pressing for not just one of us or some of us, but for the village church, every one of us, to fight for joy at the core of who we are because the times are getting crazier. And never has our light been tested like it's about to be tested. So let's do this. 
There are decisions you got to make that are different. For some of you, the decision right now is, I will trust you. I am no longer going to choose resentment and wag my finger at you. I am going to actually repent of that. I'm going to choose contentment, even though it wrecks my heart. I'm going to bring my sorrow and my pain before you. For some of you, life is actually easy, and you're fat and happy, but you need to actually like now start spending time with God. Some of you, you have this one thing in your life and you're like, I just need to let this thing go and repent of it now. Now is the time. So what we're going to do in this moment is uh, we're going to transition to communion. And if you're in this room, under your seat are communion cups. If you're at a home location, your host will bring you uh, some communion elements. And we're going to be reminded in this moment that for all of the sin and the struggles and the ways that we have fostered resentment instead of contentment in our hearts, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, I have some incredible news for you. The blood of Christ has forgiven you and cleansed you and the spirit of God is in you and ready to renew this part of you. It's ready to support you and to champion you and to help you. And so when we think of, when we partake of communion as Jesus paid for the price of our sins and he rose again to new life, telling us that not only physically will we rise again, but the the spirit of God will renew our inner person day by day and resurrect our dead souls to life. This is what he wants for you. This is what he's fighting for inside of you. The book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse two says this. This is a crazy thought if you just ponder this. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy? It was probably multiple things, one of which is watching yours and my redemption and transformation. What Jesus was going to accomplish on the cross brought him so much joy to be able to know that down the corridors of history, broken men and women and students and children like us, we're going to have the opportunity for forgiveness and redemption in the inner parts of our soul. So here's how we do communion um, if you're new with us. Communion is um, for anybody who has trusted in Jesus. You might be visiting from a different church, and that's okay. If you have trusted in Christ, would you partake of communion with us? Uh, If you've not trusted in Christ, our ask is that you let the elements pass, not because we want you to stick out like a sore thumb. Nobody will actually notice or probably pay attention. But the reason we ask this is because communion is a proclamation. It's a proclamation that you trust God. It's a proclamation that you place your faith in him. It's a proclamation that you're a sinner. It's a proclamation that you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead. And if you're not ready to make that proclamation, don't partake of communion. But if you are, if you have made that proclamation, in just a minute, we're going to partake together and we're going to celebrate through the partaking of these elements what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a time of silence. It's a time to reflect. It's time to confess, to talk to God, to thank to God. Um, at the end, I'm going to read some scripture and then we're going to partake together. Let's have a time of silence and reflection before the Lord.